you know, music teachers want to talk about like the repertoire diversity and different composers and all the things, but actually that is such a small part of what a culturally responsive music educator is about. It's not about the repertoire, it's about the connections that we're able to establish and then leverage for our students to get to a more meaningful and more rigorous learning experience, even through, even through music. On today's episode, my guest, Ashley Cuthbertson, is sharing about the essentials of creating a culturally responsive music classroom, as well as what it looks like to teach music through an equity lens. Trust me, you are not going to want to miss this one. So let's jump into the intro. Hey, hey, welcome to the Culture Center Classroom Podcast a space for educators looking to step into their power by creating a classroom environment and lessons that affirm, welcome, and celebrate all their students through instruction. I'm your host, Jocelyn Hubbard, an educator, teacher coach, wife, mother to five children, and your partner on this journey of creating culture-centered classrooms. Let's jump into the episode. Welcome back to the Culture Centered Classroom Podcast. I'm very excited for today's guest interview. My guest is someone that I met not that long ago, actually, but she and I have become fast friends, like business friends, and just really vibed around equity and culturally responsive spaces. And she is someone that I'm really thankful that I met. She's got an amazing energy and so much knowledge. She gives me a lot of different perspectives to think about. And I really respect her as an educator. I respect her as an entrepreneur and just as a person. So the guest that I'm going to be bringing on to today's show is Ashley Cuthbertson. Her pronouns are she, her. She is the founder, CEO, and principal consultant of A. Cuthbertson Consulting LLC, an educational consulting firm that partners with schools, districts, and organizations to help music and arts educators center diverse, inclusive, equitable, and culturally responsive pedagogical practices so they can ensure all learners have access to the high quality arts education they deserve. A nationally board certified teacher, Ashley holds a master's in education as well as certified certifications in the Kodali approach and arts integration. Ashley has over 13 years of experience in education as a general music and choral educator, a band educator, a K-12 musicianship instructor, a private lessons instructor, lead teacher, new teacher coach, adjunct professor, curriculum writer, speaker, and consultant. Y'all, the girl is bad. Okay. Okay. Let me, let me keep reading her bio. A regular coaching consultant for schools, districts, and organizations. Ashley has worked with music and arts educators across the U.S. and internationally to not only develop the knowledge and skills to deliver high quality, culturally responsive, and equitable instruction, but also to develop the lens for diversity, equity, and inclusion that is necessary to ensure all of our students have access to the high quality music and arts instruction they deserve. Ashley is a passionate advocate for arts education and currently serves the National Association for Music Education as a member of the Repertoire Diversity Task Force and the Virginia Music Educators Association as chair of the DEI Council. As I said, I really respect this woman. So I'm excited to bring Ashley onto the show. Hey, that was such a beautiful introduction. Thank you for that, Jocelyn. 
You are welcome. A beautiful introduction for a beautiful person. Ashley, like seriously, I, I do. I really respect you. What you are doing for music education is it's powerful. So I read your bio, but I think it's important that we share our own stories, that we use our own words to describe ourselves. So what else do we need to know about you, your journey? So first of all, I'm located here in the DC metro area. So shout out to my DMV folks. I would say my story began as a young child who just loved music and music was my place where I found community. It's my place where I found connections with folks, but it's also where I very much found like my voice for communication. My journey started, I guess, probably when I was like a baby, my family was very musical. I started playing piano when I was eight. I was very involved in uh, my music programs at my schools all the way through K-12. I did my undergrad in music performance actually, because I thought I was gonna be the principal flutist of a major symphony orchestra. I had worked towards that goal since I was actually very young. So the competitive music scene for many, many years and just kind of by happenstance when I was in college, you know, college students needed to make some extra money. I got a part-time job teaching at a middle school, supporting their band and orchestra teacher and working with students. And by accident, I guess, or maybe not accident, maybe maybe it was meant to be, I think, I found that I really loved working with kids. And I especially love, and I still love the puzzle of figuring out what best strategies work with this student and this group versus over here, I need to have a very different approach. How do I need to change how I'm moving and grooving with this group of kids versus I love that. And I was lit up in a way that I was not getting just performing and being by myself in a practice room for hours and hours every day, you know, perfecting my musicianship craft. And so I kind of decided that I was going to take a leap, which, which now that I'm saying that I realize that that is actually a theme of my life where I just decide like, you know what, we're just going to go all in. And so I I did finish my degree, but then my university was sponsoring a study abroad trip to Venezuela for us to volunteer with a social program called El Sistema that they have in Venezuela. It's a social program, but it's through music. And so the idea is how do we support our communities, our children to be able to have better opportunities? And that's really the focus, but they do it through this lens of music. It's beautiful. And so I went on that trip and I volunteered in the capital of Caracas. I was up in like the Andes Mountains and all these different places. And when I came back, I was like, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to be a music teacher. So I went and got like my, you know, my teacher certifications and things. I started teaching here in the suburbs of the DC area in the city itself. And I taught in the schools for 12 years as a, all the things that you said. So I was kind of everything. I taught band, I taught general music, I taught choir. I, I kind of did a little bit of everything. Most of what I did though was elementary general music and choir. That's most of what my teaching was here in Fairfax County, actually in Northern Virginia, just outside of, of Washington, DC. Through that that journey of being a music teacher, figuring out like my way, I found that I was really hungry to give my students the best. You know, me, myself, I had already experienced the beauty and the power of music education. I had also even seen it in a whole other country, right? For me, it was really important that I didn't just give my students like fun and good, but like rigorous, really good, meaningful learning. And I quickly found that I was not equipped to do that as a music teacher. I found very quickly, like I need to learn a lot of stuff. And so I was hungry to go to professional development, to seek out mentors, to get degrees and all the certifications to really better my own craft so that I could give my students the best. And through the kind of uh, journey of me figuring that out for myself, I started sharing with teachers in my district. More and more folks started to ask me to share like at my state music conference that led to me 
doing professional development for other school districts and other organizations. Uh, a little over a year ago, I made the decision to leave the classroom as the demand for this kind of support, especially around culturally responsive music education has really become a huge demand. There are really not a lot of people who are really focused on translating that theory into the application for music and arts educators. And it really is different for us because we actually are teaching culture. And so the way we approach it has to be a slightly different way. And also because so many of us are not trained in our teacher education programs to do more than just teach concepts and skills and techniques, I found that the demand for what I was doing was becoming great enough that I, I felt like I needed to be able to be focused in one lane instead of trying to focus on my kids at school, my kids at my choir that I was teaching, and all these teachers that I was working with. So last year, I made the decision to, to leap again and to work full-time in my consulting company, A. Cuthbertson Consulting. And we focus on music and arts educators and being able to develop the skills, dispositions, but also the knowledge to apply culturally responsive approaches, because I believe that's the lever we need to pull to get to equity, especially equitable access for all of our students in the arts. Ashley, absolutely. Yes, you and I definitely have a similar energy in that we recognized that we were not fully equipped to do the thing. Like I see these students in front of me and I want to give them the best. Yeah. But the the best thing I can do for them is to be honest with myself mm -hmm. and say, I have more to learn. Yeah. I was listening to Zaretta Hammond on an Instagram live the other day, and she was talking about how in her book, Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain, mm -hmm. she uses the culture tree as opposed to the iceberg that a lot of people use. Yeah. And the reason she did that is because the iceberg is dead. The tree is alive and it is growing. And that is what culture is. It is it is growing and blooming and yeah. blossoming. And it's like taking in its environment and deciding to shift and grow. And like, I was completely just blown away by that. I'm like, oh my gosh, just one yeah. simple tweak sometimes or a little bit of an explanation can completely shift your perspective. Yeah. And I say that because you mentioned how music, you are literally teaching culture. Music is something that just yeah. transcends. It, it transcends does. language and space and time. Mm -hmm. It is constantly growing and evolving. Yeah. So I just want to get a little bit of clarity. What is a culturally responsive music classroom or, or how, how does the teacher move in that space? I define culturally responsive music education as using the prior knowledge of our students, their experiences, their interests, what they already have in their mind that they know, but really to using those things as a way to engage our students in relevant musical tasks. And I highlight the word relevant because often in music classrooms, we do beautiful, wonderful musical things, but then it only makes sense within the four walls of the band room or the choir room. And then like, it literally has no connection to anything else the students were doing. So I define it as using those prior knowledge experience and interest to engage them in actual relevant musical tasks that you would see out in the real world to help students to construct understandings about not just themselves, but also others and really the world around them. How can they understand things that they're experiencing when they go to the store, when they are experiencing racism, when they're experiencing different people and different ways that people encounter the world? How can we use music to be able to help kids to develop those understandings? So I really think that we do our students a disservice, especially in the arts, when we just get ready for a concert. 
concert and that's it. We learned the songs, we learned how to play the flute. Great. And then that was it. Like what kind of connection did we help students to foster? And really it's a missed opportunity because music is never just the notes on the page. Besides the fact that music is aural, so actually it doesn't exist on a page anyway, but there's always a person behind the music. There's always a purpose behind the music. There's always a bigger reason why somebody created this work. And I find that because music educators, we're just so excited about like playing the music. We had a great experience doing this when we were in band and now we're going to teach it because we're so excited. We forget that we have to still impart that knowledge to our students and involve them in the discussions because when we really understand the reason that a piece of music was created or its purpose, the way you perform it is different. Like if I know that this is supposed to be a celebratory piece of music, I got to play it in a celebratory way. Or if I know that this is a piece of music that's sacred and really even shouldn't be performed, I'm going to probably interact with it in a different way. And I think a lot of times that's a big missed opportunity. I I noticed that teachers I work with miss is because we just are trying to get to the concept and the skill and the technique and we have the concert. And it's like, actually, there's so much more context that if we deliver to our kids, we can get them to not just understand the people, but we can understand like the context of where this lies in time and space. Ashley, I would have absolutely loved teaching with you on the same staff because as an English teacher, I love the story. I talk about the narrative. I want to think about what, as you said, like what is the author feeling? What inspired them to write this story? That is what music is. It is stories put to a melody. So, oh my gosh. And I know from talking to you and other music educators that I support, that music teachers have such short amounts of time that they're actually with their students, right? Sometimes like 30 minutes once a week, maybe twice a week. Mm -hmm. And I just think to myself, this is a great opportunity for everyone that's listening to think about the opportunity for collaboration. How can you be sitting down with your music teacher and talk about how you can extend out this time period, this piece of music that you all are focusing on and weave it into lessons in the history class? How can we take it and weave it into lessons in the English class? How can I be pulling other pieces so that the students can get a full understanding of this time period and the people and and the way that they were interacting with each other. And yes, Mm -hmm. the music was one expression of this time period and this group of people, but like we could take this thing so much deeper. Integration, right? I was talking to a a good friend of mine on on my show. We were talking about the fact that in schools, we are very siloed. Like now we're in math class, mathing. Now we're in science class, we're sciencing. Now we're in music class, we're musicing. But actually like life is integrated. Like we don't think in a siloed way because we don't experience life silo. But for whatever reason in school, the way the schedules are designed, it silos us. I think back to like my experience in the schools that I taught in, especially the school I taught in for the longest period of time, my most favorite experiences were when I collaborated with classroom teachers and we utilized a more arts integrated approach. It was more exciting for us, but also it was more exciting for the kids because they would experience in their, you know, their language arts block, learning about something. And then me and my music class, I know that they're doing that. I was able to bring that into the music that we were studying. That was exciting for me. Um, Cause again, I didn't see them more than maybe two or three times a week, which I was privileged in that fact that I saw my students two or three times a week, but 30 minutes goes by so quickly. To know that my colleague in their language arts block is also building on some of this knowledge allows me to just go deeper instead of having to like start 
from zero every single time. When I have the opportunity to collaborate with my colleagues in the in the grade levels, that was my favorite. I love that. I wish that I had had that opportunity in the the first school that I taught. I'm trying to even think if we had a music teacher. Like we had art. Boy, oh boy, if I am overlooking someone, I feel absolutely horrible. But it was a small school. Like we all knew each other. And so for the quote unquote non-core classes, which I just like, you see, I'm stumbling over these words because I hate the way that were that they yeah. are like labeled. Mm -hmm. But the kids went to gym, they went to art, they went to library. I really, I cannot think of them going to music. I know in high school, they got to do music. We had the marching band and all that, but I don't know if we did. Oh, I hate the, I hate the fact that I can't even remember that. Especially in a small school district, they kind of choose like where to put the music. And because the regulations around music and the arts are a little flimsy, like some districts take advantage of the flimsiness of the way policies are written. So I love this idea of being able to collaborate, like you said, to really bring a depth because life is very much interconnected. You are so right in that. There's not a day that goes by that I'm not mapping and sciencing and momming and teaching and this, this, like yeah. all the things come together. So how can we be helping our students to understand that space mm -hmm. much earlier? One of the yeah. things that I love to really bring in when talking about creating like a culturally responsive learning space is to think about restorative practices, trauma-informed practices, social emotional learning, and all of those tie so beautifully with music. Like yeah. music is this tool that can help students when we're thinking about managing and regulating our emotions. Yeah. You turn on a song and it can really calm you down. Yeah, It can really bring you to a space of like, okay, I'm here, I can breathe, or it can elevate you and get you yeah. excited so you're happy, right? If you think about restoring a relationship, a friend of mine, this was a few years ago, she sent me a text message and she was like, Jocelyn, just click play and turn this up. And it was Shanice, I Love Your Smile, which is one of my favorite oh. songs. And she just sent it to me, right? And so so that was a way for us to sustain our friendship, knowing that she saw yeah. me in this yeah. way enough to send me a song that would elevate my spirit. Mm -hmm. I know that culturally responsive pedagogy and teaching and all of this, it's not just a set of strategies. Right. But when you're working with teachers, what are some of the ways that you encourage them to begin creating this type of space? Uh, that's a great question. So, and that's the, that's the question that music teachers are most seeking is how do we actually like we understand the theory we understand that we need to do this like but how how do we do it in our classrooms so thank you for asking that the first thing that I, I always encourage my teachers is first of all do you actually know who your students are and yes you can go on the school website and you can find like the breakdown of demographics but actually do you know who they are right because to be able to really design a culturally responsive musical program instruction lessons like you have to first start with what are the students prior knowledge experience and interest and so if you don't know that information you're going to be like in the dark just trying to stumble around and figure it out but can we figure out who our students actually are and then the, the question always is well i have a limited amount of time with my students i have this i have that how do I do all of this in such a short period of time? Well, we do little things every day and we have to just be committed. So in my classroom, I just decided that I needed to be committed to making space for my students every single time I saw them. Sometimes we would take like the whole 30 minutes and I'd be like, oop, I guess that was our music lesson. But you know what? That was useful for me 
And for us to build a bond in that way. And now I have so much information for when we come back next time about how I can make the lesson I was intending to teach. I can make it even more connected to your prior knowledge and experiences because we just spent this whole time like talking and really getting to know each other. Advise my, my teachers. And it doesn't matter what musical discipline they teach. If they teach elementary general music, if you're a high school band teacher, there needs to be time every time that you see your students we are just getting to know them. And it could be as simple as having like a do now question on the board that when they come in, they can talk amongst themselves. But let's spend just like two or three minutes and can we share with each other that way everyone gets a chance to talk. And then can we get three people just to share out what is something in relation to this question that I asked? It, and it could be it could be anything. It could be related to the content that we're getting ready to teach. It could be related to the songs we're getting ready to learn. It could be related to, sometimes I would ask just a completely random question. Would you rather uh, live in the sky or live underground? Like literally like any, anything just for me to start to get to understand who my students are, what motivates them, what experiences that they have. I mean, I know the concepts that I need to teach, but I can make them more contextualized and make them more relevant to my students when I know who they are. That's the first thing I always recommend to my teachers. We cannot just jump into curriculum and content and getting ready for the, we cannot do that. Because then what, what are we really trying to accomplish with our students? Is our goal to have polished concerts or is our goal for kids to really be able to connect to music, to use it to better understand themselves and what they're experiencing, right? I think that's more important because the reality is most of our students are not going to go out in the world and be professional musicians or even music teachers. So what do we have for our kids if we're not preparing them for the real world and to better understand their position in this global society, right? It could be like two or three minutes, right? It doesn't take a lot of time, but it does take you being committed. I will say that because there's always the pressure, you know, especially when I was you know, with my choir and we have the concert next week and we're not fully memorized, you know, there's the pressure, like, let's just get to work. But it's like, actually... When I take that little bit of time, I'm able to teach way more because my students are coming with me versus me pulling and dragging them to like learn the content. Now they're really with me because they want to be. And so it, at the beginning, it might feel uncomfortable to spend extra time. And I encourage teachers to take as much time as you need to, like maybe take 10 minutes. Maybe that's a lot of your class period, but do it anyway, because that is going to give you so much better information about your students. It's going to also allow you to better teach later on. Like putting that money in the bank, you'll be able to take those deposit out later and you're going to see the return on it. You might not see it right away, but you will you will see a return. You know, music teachers want to talk about like the repertoire diversity and different composers and all the things. But actually, that is such a small part of what a culturally responsive music educator is about. It's not about the repertoire. It's about the connections that we're able to establish and then leverage for our students to get to a more meaningful, a more rigorous learning experience, even through even through music. See, and Ashley, I would even kind of push the teachers. I mean, you're talking about commitment. What is the internal struggle that you're having mm -hmm. that is making you even say, I don't have time for this. Those two, yeah. three minutes, I've got to get to this thing. Like, what is this unwritten, unspoken rule that you are subscribing mm -hmm. to? Yeah. That's not really serving anybody. It's just because yeah. we've done this all the time, all the same way. Like mm -hmm. we have to also be pushing ourselves to do that internal reflection. Like we're asking, okay, who are the students? Who are you? Yeah. Who are you teacher educator? Because there is something going on internally that mm -hmm. is causing you to resist shifting your classroom space. 
Yeah, and music, a lot of that comes from, unfortunately, our field centers a lot of perfectionist, elitist kinds of ways of thinking. When you think about it as a, as a music teacher, how did I even get to be a music teacher? Well, first, at some point, I had to audition to get into college because the, in most schools of music at universities and colleges, you don't just become a music teacher. You have to be auditioning to get into your program, which is very interesting because you usually are auditioning on a major instrument, but most of us are not going to teach that instrument. So it's it's very backwards and doesn't make a lot of sense. But like I had to audition to get into the School of Music. I got to audition and take the test to be a teacher. And now when you're there, right, unfortunately, we often as a, as a field highlight the sparkly music programs, the ones that are doing the travel and the festivals. And we forget about the teachers who are doing really, I think, the real work of really helping students to use music as the beautiful vehicle as it is. And so I, I know a lot of my teachers, especially my secondary teachers that I support, they feel this immense pressure to like keep up with the Joneses, basically. And it's like, actually... We all need to shift this narrative away because most of our kids are not in those programs. Most of our kids are in programs where they're just trying to enjoy music and how can we help them to enjoy it, but still be having meaningful, rigorous learning. And so I, I know where that pressure comes from, but it's, as you just said, how are teachers really looking at like, who am I and why am I feeling the need to not push against that pressure? Why am I feeling the need to just keep doing the status quo versus what I really push teachers to think is we really need to reimagine music education as a whole. The pandemic really illuminated a lot of things in the world, right? But I think especially for us in music education, it really illuminated that a lot of our kids didn't have a place in music in the first place. Some of them were there just because they wanted to be involved in music in some way. And that was their, their choir program was the only way that they could do it. But they learned throughout the pandemic and being in virtual teaching that they learned that there are actually a lot of ways that they could still be involved in music that didn't necessarily have to be involved with their school music program. And so a lot of my teachers that I work with, the big struggle right now is getting our numbers to be back up to pre-pandemic levels. But the, the unspoken underneath that is that many of those kids that were contributing to that big number that you had in your band, they didn't actually want to be there. That's the hard truth, right? And now that they've seen other ways to be involved in music, they're not coming back. So are we really going to keep holding on to this like traditional thing that really wasn't serving all of our students in the first place? Or are we really ready to reimagine music education to be a place that's inclusive of a variety of kinds of learners at a variety of skill levels, too? That's like the hard that's the hard truth of where we are in our field. That is the hard truth. And I think that's where the conversation of equity starts to happen. Yeah. And I always tell people that we can't really have a conversation of equity until you have examined your own ideas, beliefs, biases, all of that stuff, because your understanding of what equity is, is shaped by those things. And when you can't see that you have a bias in this one area, you cannot, you, you don't see that you're holding on so tightly to tradition, then your equity like lens is askew. I don't know. Lot, lots of lots of thoughts. Lots of, <laughs> lots of <ideas>. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I think about all the time. Is like how do we really push music teachers to get away from the tradition? Right? It, it did not. It's not serving all of our kids. That's that's the truth. It's not serving everybody. It's not. And how can we, as you said, start to reimagine music education? I think it does begin with us understanding who we are. Like yeah. if we're going to do an identity map and say, I put my name Jocelyn and then I put musician, I put band director, I put whatever very specific thing. Like, what does that look like for me? And to ask that question to our students, to have them start to show you as you're talking about like a do now or something to help you get to know your students better, 
maybe ask them to map out, like put musician in the middle of a circle and then put five little lines. When you think about a musician, what does that person look like, sound like, move like, feel like? Would you enjoy spending time with this person? Are you that person? And then I can start to see, okay, this is how they view music. This is their idea of a musician. Now I want to elevate that by challenging it, right? So you think that a musician looks this one way, but we are all musical in different ways. We all have a genius inside of us. So I I love that idea of getting to know our students. And I think that that's one way that we can do that and mapping it out as the music educator to then compare what you wrote down versus what your students wrote down and say, oh boy, <sighs> let's look at see I what they're really thinking. Yeah. I need to I need to make some changes here because I'm on a different page. Like I am on a totally right. different page about music. Like what is good music, right? That is mm. based on your perspective. Yes. That's a big question. Who decides? Who decides what's good and what's not? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I've definitely talked with music educators who have said things like, oh, it's just so challenging for me to play some of the music that the kids like because oh, it just grates mm-hmm. on my nerves. And listen, yeah. I'm not into every type of music either. But right. if I know that this is going to be beneficial for this particular child, and like you said, it's going to help them to develop that love of music. Yeah. that you have, they can't develop love in the same way that you develop love. They got to develop love right. in their own way. And so yeah. are you facilitating that experience for them? Or are you, I don't even know what the other word is. Yeah. Are you making space for it to be possible that even though you don't know that music or you don't value it, that they do value it? And can you, are you willing to like actually look and see, well, what about that kind of music that I don't know, or I don't find great? Like, I don't love like, I don't know, like trap music. But a lot of my students did like, can I find out what they do value about that? And can I use that piece in my instruction? I don't need to love that kind of uh, genre. I can recognize that they do. And what can I take from that that I can use in my instruction? And understand that there is genius in that style of music, right? Someone is, is using their perspective and they're weaving their story in so that other people hear it, see it, connect with it. And so like, I respect that. Like you said, even if I don't listen to it in my personal time, I respect that. And I want to show my students that I respect that. And that means I'm respecting right. them. Yes. So another yeah. question that I have for you is because we kind of started to approach the equity conversation. Mm-hmm. I think that in order to get there, you have to start to first understand who you are, who your students are, right? Develop this cultural competency. And then you can really think about your equity lens. What do you think it looks like to teach music through an equity lens? Ooh, I love this question. So teaching music through an equity lens means that we have to be willing to, as music educators, admit kind of what we were just talking about, that we don't know everything about every genre, about every musician, but we are committed to making sure that we are always expanding the musical palette of our students. One of the like look fors when I'm working with teachers about like what's going on in their classroom right now, one of the look fors is, is there a wide variety of both local, but also global genres of music that are happening? And again, it doesn't mean that the music teacher needs to be the expert, but there are so many ways that the music educator can connect to culture bearers or people from different cultures. Because a lot of people are writing music right now from so many different backgrounds and they're being highlighted, right? The old day of saying, well, I don't know where the Black composers that are living are is like such a ridiculous statement because there's so many people that are highlighting and bringing their voice. First of all, they were always there. 
But now it's like, they're more out there, right? There's no reason for anyone to say, I couldn't find an Asian composer. I couldn't find an indigenous. Yes, you can. (laughs) You're not looking hard enough. And you're not paying attention to what's going on, right? And that's part of part of your craft as a music educator is we have to always be thinking about, well, what music is happening now? People will say, why we are, we're doing pop music. And then the pop music is like, hang on, Sloopy from the 60s. And it's like, that's actually not current pop music. Like what is current music that you're keeping up with? And it does require mm-hmm. a little bit of work, right? It does require you to pay attention to what the kids are listening to. It does require you to be paying attention to what are the trends in different genres of music? Like who are the classical artists who are doing great new things? It does require you to pay attention and to keep up. And we did that as kids and college students. But for whatever reason, I think it's hard when we become, I know why, it's because we're so busy with 30. Somebody the other day was telling me they have 30 sections of classes every week. And I was like, well, no wonder you're exhausted. Like that's crazy to have 30 sections of classes every week, which by the way, is not unusual in music. Um, doesn't make it right, but it's not unusual. And so I understand that the, the time is a definite piece, but if we're going to be looking through a, an equity lens and how do we teach music through an equity lens, we have to stop sticking to the old dead white composers of like hundreds of years ago. And not to say we get rid of those, but that can't be the only thing that we're teaching. How are we connecting people to living, our students to living composers, living genres of music that are happening and evolving right now? Because music is a reflection of culture. And so an easy way for us to understand the culture of ourselves and of the people around us is to look at what music is being created. It's like such a in our face thing that is happening, but gets missed a lot, I think, because the genres of music that are in the curriculum already created for us, a book can't keep up with things that are happening now, right? Because the book was printed, it's done. And so it's easier to go to the book, right? And be looking at the lessons or to look at past concert programs and to pick that music. It does take more work to really pay attention to, okay, well, what what kind of music is coming out of the youth community right now? Who's creating music? What are what are the uh, topics that the music is talking about? Because that's how you know what's happening, right? Music is always a reflection of the culture and the times. And the only way you can do that is to pay attention. So when we're looking at how do I teach music through an equity lens, we got to be teaching current music and current musicians that are creating and happening now? Because I can't connect us. How do we learn about people living right now if we're talking about music from hundreds of years ago all the time? We have to be thinking about right now, how are we helping kids to connect to the real world right now and what's happening? I love that you said we don't have to get rid of the quote unquote classical musicians because there is value in studying them and learning about their musical genius. Yeah. So many people in this education space are like afraid. They're just like, you're getting rid of everything. We're not getting rid of, we're just adding to so that we don't see the same thing every single time we turn the page. This is not necessarily music, but I think about for my kids, when it was Black History Month, my first grader, my third grader, and my fifth grader all came home talking to me about Rosa Parks, Barack Obama, who else did they do? Martin Luther King. You know, it's like that classic four or whatever. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? All of you in three different grade levels learned about the same four people. Right. As though there's no one else out here. All of it needs to be diversified. As you said, like we can't just be pulling music, talking about Louis Armstrong and, you know, Ella Fitzgerald, who ooh, is my girl. Okay. Like I love <laughs> Ella, Billie Holiday. Like those yeah. are my people. But yes, right. But we do, as you said, in order to connect our students, Mm -hmm. we have to be pulling from right now. And so to like, hello, 
take some of the pressure off of yourself and just ask the kids. Just That's ask what I always the say. Kids. Yeah. <laughs> they know what they're listening to. Just ask. Because I, I don't know if you're in like the like teacher Facebook groups and things. And I, I look in there just to see what people are talking about. And people ask that question all the time. Like, what are some fun pop songs that kids are listening to? Why are you asking the adults? Ask the kids. Right. They know what they're ask listening the to. Yeah. Please, please just ask the children. Tell them to create a playlist and send it directly to you, right? Yeah. Then that way you can listen through, filter out the inappropriate uh, language and therefore use yeah. whichever ones do qualify or build right. out this whole thing. Like, as you said, as, if we are collaborating with the music teacher and the English teacher and the history mm -hmm. teacher, if we're all talking about this one particular time period and we're building it out, but then we're connecting it to today. So then now we're talking about different themes because the reality is there's nothing new under the sun. So right. how were they talking right. about this very same issue back in 1817? And then we right. start talking about it again in 1952. And now mm -hmm. we talked about it in 2006 and oh, it has come right back around in 2023. Right. Yeah. Like how are we connecting all the dots for our students? Right. And when people ask that question of, well, or not, it may ask the question, but raise the concern of, I don't want to get rid of the classics. That's what I say is there's always these like cycles that happen in music. I guess music reflects the people and the times and like a good way to know like what like politics was happening in a time period is to listen to the kind of uh, music that people were creating and what were they saying in the lyrics, like a perfect, easy way to know like what was going on, what were the tensions in the time. But so much of what was created in the classical period or the romantic period, we can see traces of that even in music now today. Um, uh, a friend of mine, Maria Ellis, has a show called Bach and Beyonce. And I forget what episode, she's in St. Louis. I forget what episode it was where she was going back through different samples that hip hop artists are using now that trace back to these old, old classical pieces. And I was like, that is such a perfect example of how do we create a relevancy for learning concepts that we got to learn anyway, but how do we take it from the music that the kids are already listening to? And so much of hip hop music is sampled anyway. Maybe I'll send the episode to you. It's so perfect where she's like, yeah, all these samples, like they're not new. They came from all these other classical pieces and romantic era, Baroque era. And they just gave it the 2002 spin or the 2023 spin. That's an easy way for us to make it relevant for our kids. Because I don't think you got to get rid of the classics. There's still so much to be learned, right? That's when we think about like music theory and aural kinds of things. But all that music transformed into what we have today. So can we, instead of skipping the bridge, can we look at how things have evolved and transformed over time? That's an easy way to start with what kids know now and still connect them to historical things. Because I think that they should, they should know like the historical roots of different genres of music, but we should not get rid of that. And if that's where you're starting, how is a kid supposed to like have any context for that? They don't know about like Bach in 1685. Like, why are we starting there? Let's start from 2023. And then can we then trace back to other times and other genres and places? Yeah. Yeah. One other thing I was thinking about as you just said that is how the same song can be sung or performed by a different artist who subscribes to a different genre. So what I mean by that is like my girl, Whitney Houston, she sings, I will always love you. But then that was really a Dolly Parton song. Right. So then that was a country music song. I know that other like 
Kenny G, right? Maybe he played it just on the saxophone. So you're just hearing the instrumental, but like how did he flip it so that it was more in line with jazz? How can we also be looking at the very same song? Because what you just said made me think about what you said at the beginning of this episode, where you were talking about when you understand the history of a song, then you perform it differently. How does thinking about the audience that a, a country music artist is trying to sing for to around about whatever how does that influence the way that they sing this song versus r&b hip-hop jazz classical how can we be shifting our understanding and our perspective and get a sense of the song and the nuances of the emotions that it can evoke based on the way that it's performed yeah and now we have to talk about like what are the musical devices that make it sound different what are the concepts that we might see in the kenny g version when he's playing on his saxophone like what are like the literal like melodies and the way he's turning how's that going to be different than maybe a vocalist and how they're going to use the techniques because i think sometimes in music we feel like a culture response's approach is very like woo woo we're just talking about different diverse songs and composers it's like actually no it's not about that it's about how do we understand the concepts and the skills and the techniques through the lens that our students already have we don't need to give them things that are totally unrelated they already have all this knowledge how do we start from the knowledge that they know and now it's going to make more sense right when i talk to my students about different like vocal glissandi and different uh like ways that artists use their voices kind of like in an instrumental way i always use beyonce beyonce is a perfect example of a singer who uses her voice very much like an instrumentalist with all the different glissandi and the dips and all the things that she does my students know Beyonce. And so when I say that, oh, yeah, you know how in this song, let's listen to how she sang it this way. And now when we perform this, can we look at how it was similar? Now we can talk about what was the musical concept melody? What was the melody that devices that she was using? Now we can make it connected to them. And we are still talking about the same concepts, same skills, same techniques. But now they have a, a frame of reference for it. Now it's contextualized. It's not some random old piece of information that I'm throwing at them that they have no connection to because they know, oh yeah, in that song when she was singing, she has all these different tropes. Now they know what that's called. They have the name for it and they can talk more intelligently about the music. And when they hear it in other contexts, now they're intelligent about what they're hearing, not just, oh, you know, when Beyonce did like that. No, they know the name of what it is called and they can recognize it. That's what we're trying to get to in a culturally responsive music classroom, not just woo woo, singing different songs. No, like it's still rigorous standards based learning. It's about how do we start with what's relevant for our kids first, though. Like all of that. And I want to say something about that. But I also, for those of you that are watching this interview on YouTube and you saw Ashley like doing her hand <laughs> motion or whatever. <laughs> That made me think about, I don't know if you've seen the movie Four Christmases with Vince Vaughn and, um, oh Lord, what is her name? Short, blonde. Reese Witherspoon? Yes, yes, Reese Witherspoon. Reese Witherspoon. And so she, they're like at this Christmas party or something, they're at some office party and one of their coworkers is like, yeah, I hate going home for Christmas because my niece thinks she's Beyonce and she's always like, <laughs> and he's like doing his hand motion with it. And I mean, so you just made me think about that. How, yes, we don't know what the words are sometimes, but we, we sure do get our point across by right, yeah. expressing like our nonverbals expression. Right. So I don't know. I may have to cut that horrible sound out of the, out of the audio, but <laughs> I say, leave it in. I love it. 
that was a connection, right? You made a connection to what I was talking about. I did make a connection. And I love how you expanded this definition of culture. Obviously, this podcast is called The Culture Center Classroom. And so I define the word culture as many times as I can because it my understanding of culture continues to shift and grow and as we apply it in different spaces. So I love how you're just like, it's not this woo-woo thing. It really is connecting to who our students are and then teaching through that space, like figure out what is relevant to them. What do they believe? What do they value? And then tap in right there. Another way that music educators can sort of remove some of this overwhelm for themselves is to connect with you. You have a podcast-esque show. I know you are shifting it. It's it's the show. So in a second, I want you to like share the name of that, but you also have so many resources on your website. I mean, I know for a fact that I have shared your name with a number of the schools and the teachers that I work with, uh, mainly a lot of the instructional coaches, because then they're working with music educators. And when I say, Ashley, that one teacher in particular told me that before she meets with her music educator, she always listens to a portion of your show and then she'll like send it to her music educator and say, hey, can you listen to this? And then we're going to talk about that during our coaching session. So you have a great way of of relaying information and making this work not easy because it's, you know, I never want to slap easy next to it, but you help to make it more simple. You make it more streamlined and you give us a good understanding of what it should look like. I want for educators, for school leaders, for, for the director of the fine arts department, like I want them to be able to connect with you so that they can help their teachers create a musical experience that their students truly deserve. But honestly, what the music educators desire for it to be, like you said, you didn't get into music education just because you did it because you love music and you and you see how transformative how it can be a transcending experience to engage with music and so you want that for your students but you don't always know how to do it and ashley you are someone that they can connect with so can you please share where you can be found my landing place on the internet is my website which is my name www.ashleycuthbertson.com. So I have a lot of blog articles that I've written on a whole variety of topics, but all around this field of music education and equity and cultural responsiveness. So I also have my show. The video show is called the Music Ed Quitty Chat, E-D-Q-U-I-T-Y, play on the word equity and also education. So the Music Equity Chat, the link to my show is also on my website. But if you go to my YouTube channel, which is um, at A Cuthbertson Consulting, you can find um, not only all my show episodes, but also any of the times recently that I've done like Ask Me Anything episodes where I just went live and just talked about different questions that I get from music educators. I'm also on many of the socials. So come connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm Ashley Cuthbertson. Come find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm a Cuthbertson 10. Just go to my website and click the button for Instagram. That's an easier way. And I'm also on Facebook at a Cuthbertson Consulting. And if folks are looking, and I know this is the time when folks are looking to uh, get professional support for their music educators in the summer and for the year, I'm opening right now for new clients. So my my main program, and I always suggest to folks that, yeah, I can come in, I can do a one-off workshop but it's going to be an introduction. And most of the time when folks are coming to me, they're coming for, how do I actually apply this with my music educators? 
How do we move beyond the theory? We understand cultural competence. We understand equity, but we don't understand how to actually do it. What does it look like? And so that introductory session, I would be happy to do with you. And the best way to work with me are folks who work with me over time. So my full program is a mix of knowledge and skill building workshops, as well as group coaching and individual coaching. It's the Responsive Music Educator Lab program. And I'm opening that right now for folks for the next school year. I'm doing a webinar coming up next Wednesday, May 17th. The webinar is called the four-part framework to high quality equity PD for arts educators. All school leaders, instructional leaders, state network instructional leaders that work with K-12 folks are encouraged to come. Come find me on my website for that link. That uh, webinar is where I'm gonna literally walk through my program and what is the framework that I've created that I have now tested with my folks that I've worked with all across the US and internationally of what are the parts that music and arts educators need in their professional learning to move them past the surface level understandings to actually apply it into their classrooms. And I would love to be able to work with any of your listeners in my program for next year. So reach out to me. It has been an absolute pleasure talking with you, Ashley. Any last words before we shut it down? Yeah, I mean, this was such a joy. So thank you for having me back on to chat and cut up with you a little bit. I think my last words are just as we continue to all work towards a more equitable culture centered way of supporting our kids, like regardless of the discipline, I would just encourage all of our listeners to think in an integrated approach. What are the ways that you can work with your music and art teacher? And what are the ways that you can work and partnership together to help our kids to make those connections across disciplines. Because when we all work towards equity, it's better for all of our students. We can't have one teacher doing it and somebody else not. We all have to work together as partnerships in this education space as we're all reimagining a better way to support our kids. And so I would encourage everybody to think, how can we be more integrated? How can we be making sure that the learning is hitting in a variety of disciplines? And how can we all work together? Well, I have nothing to add there. That was beautifully said. Everyone, I cannot wait to hear your thoughts on this episode. Until next week, be an educator that centers equity, that celebrates diversity, and that affirms culture every single day. If you are loving this podcast, it would mean so much if you could share it with a friend. I'd also love for you to rate and review this podcast on your favorite listening platform. That way other educators know that this is the podcast for them. All right, my friend, I'll talk to you next week.